0: Change my message now to kids keeping their mouths quiet <laughs> about their dad's birthday, huh? <clears throat> I was actually telling my mom just the other day. I said I've been trying to forget, but Pastor won't let me. He keeps bringing it up. So, <clears throat> big 4-0. I don't know what I'm going to do in the next two days to make it feel like I'm young in the 30s still, but probably nothing. S- sleep a little bit more. Just get ready for my forties. And do you sleep more in your forties? No. You guys get to no. All right. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank thank the Lord for the years He gives us. Amen. So, all right. Take your Bible if you would. Exodus chapter fourteen is where we're going to start. And I'm going to do my best not to have you flipping around to a bunch of different places. Uh-uh. Exodus chapter fourteen. How many of you like a good underdog story? Good underdog story. <clears throat> pastor, pastor says he's every once in a while. I was thinking about that in relation to the message tonight, thinking about underdogs, and um, I started looking at some of the greatest underdog stories in history. You know, and a lot of it comes. It's it's mostly sports related. Um, that's usually where you think of underdogs, but last week or a couple weeks ago, Mike Tyson did a fight against, I think, Roy Jones or something like that. He's in his 50s now, and they did this exhibition fight, and they said, oh, he actually, you know, looked really good. He was one of the biggest, that, that, his, his fight with Buster Douglas is considered one of the greatest underdog fights of all time. Buster Douglas was a nobody and came in and knocked Mike Tyson out, and, and uh, so, I, again, I was thinking about underdog stories, and there's some baseball ones, some basketball ones, so I kind of looked at military underdog stories. Like, what are some of the biggest battles where there was like a military underdog? And uh, so I'll just share a couple of these with you just because they're kind of interesting. you got to go back in in time. There's some that are probably more recent, but the the most common ones that they talk about, one is called the Battle of uh, Salamis, which was, there were 368 Greek ships that fought against nearly 1,200 Persian ships in this battle, uh, in this little gulf there or this area out near Greece where the Persians were trying to come in. And they said that um, the Persians were better trained. They were, they were definitely well outmanning the Greeks, but the Greeks were mostly, uh, were positioned themselves so well, and they talk about this strategy that they did, that they, they blocked this strait and they would have one ship that would just full force go ahead and it would ram into the side of a Persian ship. And the Persians would just kind of freak out, not know what to do. And while they were wondering what to do with the ship that was hit, more ships from the Greeks were going to other ones and just ramming into the sides of them as like a, as like a torpedo into them. And eventually the Persians began to just get flustered and turned around and left. And so, kind of an interesting story. The Battle of Canae is another one. It was during the Second, Second Punic War. Uh, one of the greatest military history or tactical accomplishments. There were 86,000 Romans that, uh, with some different allies that went against the Carthaginians who, uh, that, who were led by Hannibal. Hannibal was a well-known uh, military leader, and they only had 45,000, so it was a two-to-one ratio, uh, roughly, of, of a fighting force. And again, Hannibal went in and used these tactics... Where he extended the center of his army toward advancing, but then he let, his, he let the sides kind of fall out as like this crescent to where the, the Romans would kind of fall into this, and then the Carthaginians would come to come around the sides, and then the Romans had no retreat. They had no way back out. And it said that out of that fight, only about 30,000 Romans survived. And they ended up finding a way to retreat or were taken prisoner, but it was, it was, they, they, they took well more than half. In that battle, even outnumbered two to one. The Battle of Malta. They call it the Great Siege of Malta. Uh, You had 30,000 Ottomans were fighting against these Maltans of only about 8,000. And what they say is that the knights who were these um, of of Hospitaller, is what they were at this island of Malta. That's what they were called, the Knights of Hospitaller. These 8,000, they went around, they harvested all the grain and crops And they took all the food and they threw it into these storehouses and hid it so that the Ottomans, when they came in, even after fighting, would have no food to go find in order to nourish themselves. And so it began to wear them down to where as they began to fight and to fight, they were losing energy, losing steam, and it ended up being that they lost up to a third of their men and ended up having to retreat because of not having enough nourishment. And so I look at these battles and I think these underdogs, you know, these outnumbered people... That as these enemies are coming in, they're looking at them thinking this is just a piece of cake. This is going to be easy. We're going to take these guys out. And just with using a little bit of some strategy and logic or maybe even just some might say luck and just things worked out and all of a sudden you see these big, big fighters, these big troops uh, getting taken down. And there's more that you could talk about in history. But it made me think of uh, this passage we're going to look at here. Actually, we're going to look at two passages here uh, where Israel is in very much of a similar place. And really, if you look at the Old Testament study, Israel, weren't they most often the underdog? Uh, They never really went into a battle as far as a people would be concerned. And people looked at them saying, that's a force to worry about. You know, "Uh oh, Israel's coming. Uh, They didn't really care about the number of Israel. In fact, at this point in time, Israel was about 600,000 people. But they weren't military people. In fact, if you if you know the context of Exodus 14, they were just coming out of captivity of Egypt. So what had they been for 400 plus years? Slaves. They weren't trained. They weren't military uh, experts. They didn't have these great weapons of war. They didn't have anything. And we're going to read this story here or at least uh, uh, look at this story here of Of This battle or you could you could call it a battle even though that's not and that doesn't end up happening where they have to fight anybody And then we're going to look in uh, 2nd Chronicles chapter 20 in just a moment and look at something similar But I want us to think about this thought tonight and 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 I I told um, Iden the the title of the message is the battle is not ours The battle is not ours And so Israel here, again, let me just give you some context. Chapters 12 and 13 lay out this deliverance. Prior to chapter 12, you had the ten plagues that God brought upon Egypt, which ended up causing uh, Pharaoh in chapter 12. um, You can follow along. I'm not going to read this. But just in chapter 12, Pharaoh ends up coming uh, uh, in verse number 30. He comes and he rises up and he tells his servants, he says, basically, (laughs) get them out of here. He calls Moses and Aaron, and and he's up in the middle of the night. He says, take your flocks and your herds and all your stuff and get out of here. In fact, he even says, go to any Egyptians that you want and borrow whatever you need. So they went to the Egyptians and said, we need leaven. Oh, Oh, we need some jewelry. Oh, we need some silver. Oh, we need this. And the Bible says that the Egyptians were urgent to let them get out. And were willing to give up and lend. They didn't put up a fight to lend. They just said, here you go. Here's all this stuff. So just think about it. The Israelites, they finally they're getting out of captivity. And they're getting delivered out of this slavery. And, and as God is basically working this out, they're, they're not just having to sneak out of Egypt. They're walking down Main Street. They're walking down in front of all of Egypt. And there's no fight. It's, yes, get out. We want no more of our herds slaughtered. We want no more of our rivers and blood. We want no more of these lice and these frogs. And we don't want our firstborn slaughtered. So just get out. Now, take what you want. And so Israel is moving really in a place of, of comfort. I mean, it, they weren't running for their lives or really uh, scared to leave. It was God was letting them, letting them leave. And so they were allowed to leave and take of the spoils. It says even in verses 33-35, it talks about this idea that they took of the spoils of Egypt and they left. And God directed them. You can look in chapter 13, in verse 17-18, it talks about God's plan for them. It says that God purposely led them to the wilderness in order to avoid going towards the east, I believe it was, or at least it was through the land that the Philistines, Philistines were because the Philistines were always at war. And so God even planned it to where they wouldn't have to go through this part of the land so they wouldn't see the Philistines and see them at war and then say, oh, it would be better if we were in Egypt. So God even said, no, let's just, we'll go through the wilderness. It talks about how God gave them a a pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day, some shade and some light. God directed them. So this move was, was a pretty good move. Not. Uncomfortable. They got to take their belongings. They got to have everything they want. It just seemed like, wow, look at what God did. God worked it out. Anybody ever had a move that just went crazy? My, Sony and I have moved three times and they've always been just, okay, Lord, thanks. Found us a place. You, you helped us move pretty quickly. You've always had help, never had anything crazy. I know sometimes people, you got to move real quickly and maybe you don't get to take belongings. You don't get to take stuff with you. You're just in a rush. You got to get out of state. The Israelites, they didn't have to, they were just kind of trawling along. It doesn't even say they were having to rush through the wilderness. They were just moving along. And then you get to chapter 14. And chapter 14 somewhat changes the story for Israel. And in chapter 14, the Bible says basically that now the Lord is directing them to this certain place to camp. They were going to encamp between Piah Pia Hariroth between Migdal and the the sea over against baal Zephon, before it shall ye encamp by the sea. So God says, now I'm going to direct you to go towards the sea. And God God gives a reason why he's going to do that. He says, I'm going to do it so I can harden Pharaoh's heart and Pharaoh's going to come chase you guys down by the sea and I'm going to have a plan. And, and, and And I'm going to take care of Pharaoh. But the children of Israel don't know that plan. It says in chapter 7 of verse number 14, and he, talking about Pharaoh. Pharaoh now, the people come to him and say, why did you let them flee? And it's like Pharaoh came to his senses. All of a sudden, he's like, why did I let them flee? And he's angry, and he's uh, mad. And so it says in verse number 6, he made ready his chariot. He took his people with him. He took 600 chosen chariots and all the chariots of Egypt. So he took 600 of the chosen, and then he took all the rest of Egypt and captains over every one of them. So his top military people, he said, you're going with me. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued after the children of Israel. And the children of Israel went out with an high hand. But the Egyptians pursued after them, all the horses and chariots of Pharaoh, and his horsemen, and his army. Again, just think of Egypt was the world power at that time. So how big do you think their army was? It doesn't tell us, but I can guarantee you this. It was not an army that would have a hard time with 600,000 people. It was not an army that would would even flinch to go to war against 600,000 people, which included women and children and fully untrained men, not soldiers. And so Pharaoh is looking at this with a hardened heart, thinking, I'm going to slaughter these Israelites, and there he, he comes to this encampment there at the end of verse number 9. In verse 10 it says, And when Pharaoh drew nigh, the children of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians marched after them, and they were sore afraid. And the children of Israel cried out unto the Lord. And they said unto Moses, Because there were no graves in Egypt, hast thou taken us away to die in the wilderness? Wherefore hast thou dealt thus with us to carry us forth out of Egypt? Is not this the word that we did tell thee in Egypt, saying, Let us alone, and we may serve the Egyptians? For it had been better for us to serve the Egyptians than that we should die in the wilderness. It's it, quite honestly, it's almost as if they just forgot the last couple months that took place, where they just got delivered out of Egypt. They got to take all their belongings. They got to take all the silver and gold and didn't have one fight leaving Egypt. No skirmish, no battle, no lives lost. They were able to walk freely out of Egypt. And who allowed that to happen? God did. They walked in the wilderness. They had this pillar of fire and this cloud. They had all this provision. And yet the moment they look up and they see this army, this military, marching towards them, it says they were so afraid. And they began to murmur and cry and say, Why would you bring us out here? There aren't any graves. It'd be better for us to be back in Egypt where we wouldn't have to die. We could just serve. Why have you dealt with us like this? We'd rather just be in Egypt and be slaves and be captives than to be free and in this wilderness and just die. Go to 2 Chronicles chapter 20 real quick before we finish that story. I just want to share with you another story here of another situation with Israel and, and Judah. At the time, the kingdoms are split So it's not quite the same group of, of obviously, people. This is years later. But 2 Chronicles 20, and again, I'm not going to read the whole passage here. I'm just going to summarize it. But in in chapter 20 of 2 Chronicles, um, the Bible says in verse number 1, It came to pass after this that the children of Moab and the children of Ammon, and with them other besides the Ammonites, came against Jehoshaphat to battle. Again, it doesn't tell us how big this army was, but Moab and Ammon were not small. They would have been known as very superior powers at that time, especially against Judah and Jehoshaphat. And the Bible says, verse number three, that, um, or verse number two, it, said, it calls them a great multitude. This great multitude is coming against them. And Jehoshaphat feared. In verse number three, and set himself to seek the Lord and proclaim a fast throughout all of Judah. And he goes on, and there's this these questions that he's talking to God about. Didn't you drive out uh, drive us out of the land? And didn't you do this? And he's he's coming before God. He says in verse number twelve, oh, our God, wilt thou not judge them? If we have no might." Against this great company that cometh against us, neither know we what to do, but our eyes are upon thee. And all Judah stood before the Lord with their little ones, their wives, and their children. Here's what I picture from the children of Israel. They hear that these armies are going to come against them, and they're afraid, and they're fearful, and they're, they're saying, well, God, don't you remember all the promises and all the things you were going to do? And, and God, we, we have no great strength that we can bring to these people. And they also bring their wives and their children and their little ones. It's almost as if they bring their whole family before God to say, do you remember these people? Do you remember these little ones? What are they going to do? How are they going to fight? What are we going to be able to do against this great multitude that's coming? Let me tell you the end of the story real quick. We know the end of the story of Exodus chapter 14. Exodus chapter 14, it's 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 a really fascinating, and miraculous story. But we know in, in, in that situation that ultimately God hardens the heart of Pharaoh to continually pursue after Israel. And he tells Moses, stretch out his arm, and he stretches out over the Red Sea, and they cross over the Red Sea. And it says that one point that there was darkness that he put, that the Israel had light, but he put darkness in front of Egypt to where they could not at that time. See Israel, they couldn't pursue them at that moment because God was giving them time and and, and the, the ability to get across the Red Sea, and they get across the Red Sea, and then as as Pharaoh is, is pursuing his chariots begin to fall apart. The Bible says that the wheels begin to fall off to where they're dragging, so they're just dragging these chariots across this to where it's it's slowing them way down, and then we know ultimately that as Moses stands on the other bank and he looks back, God tells him to stretch forth his hand again and that sea comes crashing down on top of not just Pharaoh and not just a few of the people, but all of the people that pursued. 600 of his best chariots and all the other horsemen and all of his army crushed in that Red Sea. A miraculous end to that battle. In 2 Chronicles, it's not much different of an outcome. In 2 Chronicles... You can read the rest of that chapter, but basically what happens is, is that as Moab and Ammon are coming up, they go into Mount Seir. And as they go into Mount Seir, they, they, they go to have this skirmish with these people of Mount Seir. They think they're just going to take them out, and then whoever's left, bring them with them, and then they're going to come destroy Israel. Well, what happens is, as they're up there fighting, they fight so much amongst themselves that when it's all said and done, all that's left is dead bodies. They killed themselves. And the Bible says that when Israel went over the cliff and over up into that bank to go look, they looked out over that area and all it was was dead bodies of the Moabites and the Ammonites. All dead. Not a single weapon had to be lifted by Israel. Not a single rock or not a single sling or not a single sword. Nothing. They were defeated. And God wiped them out. Again, miraculous what God accomplished. So what happened in the middle? What was Israel's part? What was Israel told to do while this was taking place? We skipped a few verses. We looked at what led up to it, and we looked at how it ended. But what was Israel told in the middle? And I think this is the key. And this, was the, this is just what stuck out to me. A moment of terrible catastrophe potentially about to happen. Uh, I, I don't know. I know we've got people in here in the military. I don't know where if you've ever had to fight an actual conflict or anything. Um, but I would say most of us have never had to stand with the hands of our children and our wives and maybe look at this force physically coming to potentially harm us. I, I, I don't want to speak for everybody. But, so I, I'm not saying that we're equally in the trauma that they are dealing with, but there is something that is said to both groups of people in chapter 14 of Exodus and 2 Chronicles chapter 20, that I think is still relevant for us today as we think about how I fight the battles or how, how, the, how I should approach the battles that I am fighting in. And that is this. If you look in Exodus 14, they murmured and they, and they said, what are we going to do, Moses, in verse number 12? Why did you lead us here? And in verse number 13, Moses says this to the people. Moses said unto the people, fear ye not, stand still, and see the salvation of the Lord, which He will show to you today. For the Egyptians whom ye have seen today, ye shall see them again no more forever. Verse 14, the Lord shall fight for you, and ye shall hold your peace. If you read in Second Chronicles 20, verse number 15, he says this, this is Jehoshaphat, and, 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 and he's being told, he says, Hearken ye all Judah, and ye inhabitants of Jerusalem, And thou, King Jehoshaphat, thus saith the Lord unto you, Be not afraid, nor dismayed by reason of this great multitude, for the battle is not yours, but God's. Tomorrow go ye down against them. Behold, they come up by the cliff of Ziz, and ye shall find them at the end of the brook before the wilderness of Jeruel. Ye shall not need to fight in this battle. Set yourselves, stand ye still, and see the salvation of the Lord with you. O Judah and Jerusalem, fear not, nor be it dismayed. Tomorrow I'll go out against them, for the Lord will be with you. What was the instruction given to Israel? You know what it wasn't? Go sharpen all that iron, make some weapons. It wasn't, hey, get up into the mountains, find some hiding places. It wasn't, throw what you got into the sea and start swimming across, see if you can make it. It wasn't, hey, line up all the men and just... Charge after the Egyptians. To take out who we can. Let's see what we can do. We'll just, we'll just do our best. That wasn't the instruction given to them. Now, look, most of us, if we thought about a battle like that or something, we would probably start strategizing like that. Okay? And probably the men of Israel were probably doing that. All right, what are we going to do to protect ourselves? What do we got around here? What do we got to fight with? What are we going to do? Uh, probably just going to surrender. I'm going to lay down on my face and let them just take me into captivity. Just give in. Moses says, fear ye not, stand still, and see the salvation of the Lord. Lately, I've been hearing just, you know, through just different messages and different things and different things I read. There's a lot of this talk about what do we do during times of chaos, right? My, my brother's pastor in Colorado right now, uh, Pastor Monday, is doing a series out of Philippian. And I'm, if I remember correctly, it's called Navigating Through Chaos. And I listened to one of his messages last week, and I really appreciated listening to that. And it really fit in with what the Lord was kind of stirring in my mind about this. What do you do when the battles rage? What do you do when the conflict is in your life? What do you do when there's mounting uh, pressure and conflict and battles? Again, it's not going to be a physical battle such as this that we're facing of some military or something coming towards us. But I started remembering what even Brother Derek was talking about to the men about knowing your enemy. Look, our enemy isn't always isn't going to be some physical army necessarily, but there's always a spiritual enemy that is battling against us. He wants to battle in your finances. He wants to battle you in your attention. He wants to battle you in, in your money. He wants to battle you in your temptations. He wants to battle you in your relationships and to cause conflict and derision and all sorts of disruption. And so... How do you handle the battles? And I submit to you today that the battle is not yours to fight. The battle isn't yours to fight. The battle is the Lord's. So what part should I have? Fear not. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. And I want to look at those just tonight and just hone in on those three thoughts that, that were given to Israel on how do I approach... This conflict, what, what should I be doing? So, three elements to allow God to fight our battles for us. Three elements. Number one here is simply removing fear from our hearts. Again, in both passages, it's very clear that when Israel saw the enemy coming, they were afraid. They were afraid and fearful. Anybody ever been afraid for your life? A few people. I'm going to tell a quick story because this is Caleb's favorite story I ever tell. I, there haven't been a whole lot of moments in my life that I've been like fearful of my life. I've had some people chase me in their car and do some weird things or I don't know, whatever. But there was one time in college where um, it was my first year in college. I was staying in this dorm that was right off the main campus, right off the main road there. And right outside was, it was a two-lane road, but it was really wide enough for like four lanes. It was this kind of wide road on Lancaster uh, well, that wasn't Lancaster Boulevard. That went this way. But anyways, on 40th Street, I think, is what it is. I could be wrong. But anyways, um, but I stayed in this dorm. And one night, we're laying in bed, and and, and and we had a curfew. It was like 10 o'clock, I think, lights out or something. So we're all laying there, and we're still, like, talking a little bit. And we just start to hear this noise. We hear this, and you're like, whoa, is someone drag racing out there? Like, if that's a student, they're busted. You know, like, we're thinking, you know, we're kind of joking around about it. But it just kept happening. This car would just be flying and just slam on its brakes. You could just hear the brakes screeching. I mean, all the way in this dorm room, we can hear this. And so finally, we hear some bustling in the hall, and then we hear some people out in the foyer of the dorm. And so we go out there, and we're like, what is going on? They're like, man, it's crazy. These guys in the back room, they're like, we're looking out our window, and we see this guy in this truck, and he's flying down 40th Street here, and then he's slamming on his brakes. There's all this smoke going, and then he just turns around, and he goes back the other way, and he does the same thing. He's done it like six or seven times. We're like, we have no idea what he's doing. Well, another guy comes out, and he's like, actually, you guys didn't see it, but there was a girl in his truck, and she jumped out and is hiding on our property over there. And he's basically going up and down trying to find this girl. So me and this guy, Jeff, were like, what? Dude, let's go find this girl, and we're going to help her. Like, man, PJs and everything, we're going. (laughs) Like, we're going to rescue. So without even thinking... Him and I run out the front door. We run into the street. And again, this is a pretty wide two lane. So we're basically halfway, almost three quarters, almost to the other curb. And we're kind of looking in the bushes, trying to see if we see her sitting in it. Because there's all these bushes kind of in the front. And we're like looking and thinking, man, where could she be? We hope she's not hurt. And all of a sudden, I look at Jeff and I'm like, where's the truck? And at that moment, we look and about... 30 yards over, these headlights turn on. And the guy peels out and comes right for Jeff and I. And Jeff and I turn, and we run, and right in front of our our lawn was like this wall. It was about this tall. No joke. Jeff and I got on that wall and over as that truck came up on the curb and basically rubbed his side against that wall. As if, if you were here, I was going to hit you. And then he sat there parked. And so Jeff and I stood there, and then he rolled down his window, yelling at us, he was swearing, and then he went to open his door. And right when he did, all the other guys in the dorm came walking out. Go ahead, guy. Come out. Go ahead. And I went and stood next to like a six-foot-four. I'm like, yeah, come on out. Pull up my PJs a little bit more, you know. And, and really, the sad thing is the girl, actually, we saw her come off campus. She got back in his truck, and he peeled off, and she went with him. And so it was really uh, unfortunate that she did that. We hope, we don't know. We don't know what happened. But I remember, all of a sudden, we go inside, and people are like, what were you guys thinking? And we're like, we didn't. We didn't. And my adrenaline was really high, and I'm like, would that guy really have hit me? Maybe. I'd be like three foot seven today. I mean, it was like there would go the shins, and I'd be done. But yeah, it was so you know that's that's probably the scariest that I've gotten to where anybody really tried to maybe maybe take my life or do something uh, foolish. Maybe you've had experiences like that. You've had just fearful moments. But you know, even more practically and spiritually, we have moments that can cause fear all the time. Your finances, right? Your relationships, uh, parenting. I think of the fears sometimes I have as a parent for my kids. And thinking about, wow, am I raising them right? Or what does the future hold for them? Or what is America going to be like for my kid? I mean, I begin to think about these things. And you can easily, easily let fear begin to rule in your mind as you face the conflicts and battles that will be around you. And it's really no different. This was the battle that was before Israel. And the first response was that of fear. Let me give you a few thoughts about fear. I think you could support this in the Bible, but fear is the opposite of faith. Fear is the opposite of faith. If I am fearing man or, uh, or things, materials, and things that are around me, then my faith is not in what God can do. My faith is not Godward if I'm fearful. You know, the Bible that I can find, there's only one type of fear it ever says to have, and what is that? The fear of the Lord. There is nothing else I can find in Scripture that says it's okay to fear that. It's okay to fear that. Don't have fear in your life, but it's okay to fear if you can pay your bills. It's okay to fear uh, what the next election is going to bring. It's okay to fear disease. I can't find that in the Bible. The Bible says that we've not been given the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of sign, a sound mind. We ought not to have a spirit of fear, and really a spirit of fear is the opposite of having a spirit of faith and walking by faith. We allow then the things that are before us. You know what Israel, all Israel had to do was remember what God had promised them, what God had said he was going to do for them, what God had already done for them and brought them to this point. But the moment that they saw something that they could not overcome themselves, they let fear come in. You know what? They stopped thinking about what God had done. They stopped thinking about God. Fear also focuses on our own limitations. You know what I noticed in in, uh, Exodus chapter 14, verses 11 and 12? I may have not counted them all, but they said the word us five times. And they said the word we at least a couple, maybe three times. So who were they focused on? Themselves and their limitations. We can't do this. What are we going to do? There's no grave. In 2 Chronicles, what did they say? What strength do we have against this great multitude? <laughs> what, what are we going to be able to bring? We, can't, we have nothing to contribute. You know, when we're afraid, we begin to look at our own limitations and we begin to look at our own selves for resolution. We get, begin to look at our own selves to solve the issue. Um, you know, I, I can say this as, as men. I think we tend to try to be problem solvers, even though uh, I find my wife to be very much like that too. And she's always, always, hey, here's a problem. Let's just solve it, solve it, solve it, solve it. And we can get in a tendency where we see a battle or see a conflict or something is raging against us and we know that, that there's, there, there's something that we've got to overcome. And we'll say, well, I can't do it. You know why? Because I can't make enough money this month to pay that. I can't cure COVID. I can't deal with that. I can't do this. I can't do that. And we come up with all these limitations of what we can't do. You want to know the truth? You can't. You ultimately cannot win every battle and, and win every fight. On your own. Didn't God just deliver Israel through these plagues? Didn't He just give them this pillar of fire? I mean, I just keep thinking of all these things that God had already done for them. And yet, when it came time for a battle to be before them, they began to look at themselves. Psalm 23 says, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For thou art with me, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Psalm 27, 1, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Who else should I be afraid of? If I've got the Lord on my side, why, who else should I fear? Fear is also, it's not only um, the opposite of faith. It's not only focusing on our own limitations, but fear is forgetting God's promises. If you go back to Exodus chapter 13, verse number 5, In this chapter, Moses is laying out for them what the Passover is going to be going forward. He lays out for them the the commencement and what's commanded in regards to the Passover. But he says in verse number 5, And it shall be when the Lord shall bring thee into the land of the Canaanites, and the Hittites, and the Amorites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites, which he swear unto thy fathers to give thee. Moses just reminded them of this promise This amazing promise and covenant he made with Abraham and their fathers that they were going to be brought to a land of of milk and honey and this rich land that was going to be their land. Moses just got done reminding them of that. And all of a sudden they see this army coming. You want us to die in this wilderness. How quickly do we forget the promises that God has given us when troubles come, when battles come, and we get so caught up in fear we get so caught up in, how am I going to solve this? Or I'm so limited, or I can't accomplish this. And we forget that God's Word is full of promises that He wants to fulfill in your life. That He wants to see come through. And we'll forget them. John 14, He says, Peace I leave with you, Peace, my peace I give unto you, not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Isaiah 43, verse 1, But now thus saith the Lord that created thee, O Jacob, and he that formed thee, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed thee. I have called thee by thy name. Thou art mine. God, God over and over again had to keep reminding the Israelites, stop being afraid. Remember, Joshua over and over again kept saying, be courageous. Stop being so afraid and stop being so fearful. They kept forgetting what God had already accomplished for them, that God had already delivered for them, and what God had promised He would do. When fear is allowed in our lives, we, are, we lose sight of not only what God has done for us, but what He promises to still do. Our eyes are no longer on, on, on looking at uh, our hope of eternity. Our eyes are no longer focused on uh, the provision that He promises and on the protection that He promises. Our eyes are caught on, again, ourselves and the things that are around us and our circumstances. And fear also forgets that God is the one fighting the battle. Deuteronomy chapter 20, And he and shall say unto them, o hear, hear, O Israel, ye approach this day unto battle against your enemies. Let not your hearts faint. Fear not and do not tremble, neither be ye terrified. For the Lord your God is he that goeth with you to fight for you against your enemies to save you. You know that was given to them before they even got into the land of Canaan? Think of all the battles they were going to have when they go into the promised land. And he was already promising Your God is going to go with you and deliver all those battles. They had to be reminded over and over again. Deuteronomy 3, you shall not fear them, for the Lord your God, he shall fight for you. I remember as a kid, my brother and I didn't always have like this, you know, just, we're the best of buds relationship. You know, I was like the pesky little brother that really annoyed him all the time. And he was the older brother that made sure I stopped pestering him. And so, you know, we had our little tussles and fights and, and, and moments. But one thing I could always guarantee that if some kid picked on me at school, Wes wouldn't tolerate it. I can remember sometimes these kids that lived around the block, this one kid would pick on me and we didn't get in physical fights but, and I would go home and I don't remember being like a real baby about it. Maybe I was. But I just remember like Wes would be like, is that kid picking on you again? Maybe he saw something on the bus or something and I was like, yeah, he's you know, he's really tall. And so... Um, but one time I can know specifically I picture this kid's face we walked around the block I kind of trailed behind Wesley we walk up to the door yeah there you go you stand there Wesley like rings the doorbell that kid comes to the door he's like hey you picking on Adam again and then his older brother comes to the door and Wes is like your little brother picking on my brother and he's like he better not be are you picking on his brother I'm like that's right I walked a little bit taller that day, you know, and then we get home and I'm pretty sure my brother was like, no, I'm just, I'm kidding, he might watch this, so I had to do that, so, um, but that's one thing I could always count on, I didn't really ever do the thing like my dad could beat up your dad, I know people have done that and that's probably common, my boys probably, my kids probably don't say that about me, they might say my dad will outrun your dad or something like that, um, or out ping pong him or something, but um, I didn't really do that, but I did, I did reference my brother. I'd be like, don't mess with me. I got Wes over here, and Wes wasn't some giant, but honestly, Wesley didn't really hold back. He didn't really care. He's like, don't mess with my brother. And so I always appreciated that. I knew Wesley would fight for me. So you know what? I wasn't that afraid. Like, kids would pick on me at school, and I'm like, it won't last long. <laughs> it's going to end soon. Uh, Wes will take care of it. And Wesley didn't get into fights and stuff like that, but he would help approach them, and he would just kind of set kids straight, and eventually I just took care of it myself. But, you know, I started thinking, in this passage, the Lord shall fight for you. And and, and really, the the Israelites would get fearful and be afraid, and Moses tells them, and Jehoshaphat is told, don't be afraid, don't be dismayed. Why? Because the Lord will fight for you. He promises to fight for you. So we ought to be uh, 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 fearless. We ought to not live with fear of what the battles are before us. We ought to live with confidence and faith that God will fight for me. And God, the battle isn't mine. The battle is His. And that He'll win it. The second thing that He says to them, He says, fear not. And then He says, stand still. This was the hardest thing for me to do as a kid was to stand still. I was always, always, always going. That was all before ADD and all that kind of stuff. And, um, you know, nobody was really diagnosed with that kind of stuff. I probably would have been as a kid. Um, I just was constantly moving. I hated to sit. And the Lord would have it that I sit in front of a computer all day long right now and uh, don't get to get up and fidget as much. But uh, standing still, what does he mean here? Uh, a couple weeks ago, we were driving home and we were listening to this song, and Annabelle asked me a question. The song is called. Um, Stand Still and Let God Move was the name of this song. And we were, we were kind of singing it, and all of a sudden Annabelle was like, what does it mean to stand still and let God move? And I really started thinking about that, and I said, you know, I don't know if I've really spent a lot of time thinking about why I'm even singing this. Like, what does that really mean to me? And so I tried to explain it to her. I don't remember all the words that I said to her. But then as I thought about what Moses was saying here and what Jehoshaphat is told, I don't think it's necessarily a physical Standing still, like you can't move. I don't think that's what he was saying. Here, stand in the wilderness and don't make a move. Don't do anything. I believe it's a it's it's a place of trust. It's a place of rest. It's a place of reliance. It's a place of a presence before God that says, "I'm not going to make a decision until you lead. I'm not going to do anything until you do it." Do you know? Here's what I find interesting about this. Do you know that it's hard to stand still if you're fearful? So he starts with fear. And once you can get over being afraid and you can say, ah, I can, I, my faith is in him, I'm going to leave it to God to deal with this, I'm going to let God control this, now all of a sudden I can stand still. I can rest. I can wait on him. I can allow him uh, to do what He's going to do. I can, I can rely and wait for His leading. Stand still and let God move. The idea is, I'm going to stand still until God prods me to do something. I'm not going to act on my own. I want God to prod me to do that. I want God to prod me, and then you know what I need to do? Obey and do it. When we've replaced fear with faith, we can incorporate the idea of being Still. We can rest in God's hands. He tells them in both situations, you can read both passages, he says the same thing, stand still. You know, sometimes when there's troubles and there's conflicts and there's battles uh, against us and things that are just disrupting and bringing chaos and bringing a difficulty, we not only get afraid, but then we feel like we got to hustle and bustle about just finding a solution for everything. Okay, okay, just go get another job so you can make some more money, we can pay those bills. Uh, just... You know, I'm going to change jobs because I can't handle these people at work, so I'm just going to quit, and I'll just go find this. And then, and then I'm going to go do this, and then I'm going to... And we find all these solutions, and we constantly, 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 constantly just keep trying to solve and solve and solve. And you know what? Sometimes you just got to do, have faith and stand still. You know, we live in a society today that just says, go, 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 go. Figure it out, figure it out, figure it out, figure it out, figure it out. All the time. And I started thinking in my own life, I'm like, how often do I just say, Lord, you're directing this. Let me just sit back. Spend a little bit more time in prayer. Spend a little bit more time in just meditating in his word. Spend a little bit more time just communicating with my wife about what God is doing and what he's working in and, 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 and thinking it. verses, i got to solve this all the time. i got to have a solution. Every battle, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fight it. And I started thinking about that even with the election. I started thinking, what part am I going to play in the next four years like it's going to matter? You know, like anybody's going to hear me. I'm like, I'm going to start a blog. And I'm going to start talking about everything this present. <laughs> you know, I'm just, you know, throwing out. I mean, My mind just goes to all these things like, we're going to change the world. And then I'm like, I got to go to work. Okay. <laughs> so, you know, but that's kind of how our mind is. We see all these things happening and we, we automatically think of, man, I, I, I got to figure out how to handle this versus stand still. Let God move. Let God work. You can see it all throughout Scripture, this principle of waiting on the Lord, on resting on the Lord. And the reality is is that your salvation is resting on the Lord. You cannot be saved by being fearful and by not standing still and not seeing the Lord's salvation. I mean, really, this is a picture of our salvation that i got to put my faith in Him, and I ultimately just got to rest in Him and allow Him, allow him to save me. I can't do it on my own. And, and Moses is saying, you guys can't do this on your own. Jehoshaphat, you can't do this on your own. Just stand still. A couple quick principles about standing still. Being still goes against our natural man. I thought about this verse, Proverbs 14, 12. There's a way that seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. You know, when things come our way, Naturally, as a person, we think we know the way to resolve it. And ultimately, it leads to destruction. I mean, it does. It may not at that moment, but every act that is an act of our own leads to deterioration, leads to death, leads to destruction, leads to vanity. It just, it'll, it'll ultimately lead to, to no good thing if we just constantly do things that are right unto us. Being still against, goes against our natural man. We don't want to be still. We want to always have a a solution, and and, and have everything figured out. Secondly, being still allows God to do His work. Psalm 46.10 says, Be still and know that I am God. You know what He doesn't tell you to do? He doesn't tell you... He doesn't say, Be still and then focus on all the other things around you. He didn't tell Israel, Be still but then watch them and see what the the, the army's going to do. Psalm 46, he says, be still and know that I am God. So what is he telling him to do? Be still and spend time focusing on God. Look to God, look at God. Being still allows us to be strengthened in our battle. Being still allows us to be strengthened. He says in Psalm 27, wait on the Lord, be of good courage, and he shall strengthen thine heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. Psalm 37, 34, wait on the Lord and keep His way. And He shall exalt thee to inherit the land. When the wicked are cut off, thou shalt see it. I like that phrase, thou shalt see it. You know what you'll see? You'll see God's deliverance. Oh, you know what you'll see? You'll see God's provision. You know what you'll see? You'll see God accomplish what He said He was going to accomplish. So, You know what you need to do? Just wait on Him. Isaiah forty thirty-one. but they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. By waiting, by standing still, by resting, we can allow God to do His work. We can allow God to strengthen us as we serve Him, to strengthen us and renew us in our life and renew our strength by waiting on Him. pastor several months ago, maybe even last year, preached uh, I think it's in the book of Matthew, but about uh, rest and and taking uh, the yoke. That Christ said, "Take my yoke upon you, for my uh, my burden is easy. My burden is light." I'm messing up the the verses, but anyways, the idea is this: is that so often what do we do? We take our own yoke upon us, don't we? And we take our own yoke, thinking this is my fight, this is my battle. I'm just going to carry my yoke. And Jesus says, "Give me your yoke, and you take mine. Mine's light. Mine's easy." Moses is telling them, hey, fear not and stand still. Would you just be patient? Would you just wait? Just watch. Just look to see what's going to happen. Would you just chill out? And as Christians, we can be so hustle and bustle. I'm afraid of everything that's going to happen. I'm afraid that this isn't going to work out. I'm afraid that this isn't. So I've got to just find all these solutions. He's saying, fear not and stand still. And then lastly, the third thing that you then can do, and we've already alluded to it, is See the salvation of the Lord. Recognize fully God's heroics, right? Recognize God's heroics. Look at what God's going to accomplish. Imagine being on the other side of that Red Sea. Imagine being on that side now, looking across, and you're seeing these waters come crashing down on the, uh, the Egyptians. I wonder if some of those people thought, why was I so scared? Why was I so worried about that? I think all of us in here could think back about moments where God delivered something and we look back and said, man, I really wish I would have just trusted God a little bit more on that. Look what he did. Look what he provided. Or maybe there's things that because we're not avoiding fear and we're not resting in him, there's things he's delivering us from now that we're not even acknowledging. That we're not even recognizing that God's provision and God's plan and God's way for us is being accomplished because we're not even looking to what he's doing. We're so caught up in the things that are battling us that we're looking at all the other things, all the other things I can see around me. I'm focusing on all those things. He says, see the salvation of the Lord. He didn't talk about see that army fall apart or see how big they really are. He didn't talk about anything. He said, see the salvation of the Lord. Look to him. The same is in... 2 Chronicles 20, again, you can read that passage, but he said the same exact phrase, see the salvation of the Lord. And look at what God did. We read it earlier, but in in Exodus chapter uh, 12, God already had this planned out. God already said, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart I'm going to lead Israel down to this little cove and where this little this encampment because it's going to cause Pharaoh to push even harder because he's going to think he's got them. And I'm going to push him and I'm going to push him and I'm going to deliver my people. God already had that planned out. Do you know that God already has plans for you? He already has plans for you. God already knows what his plans are for you for your career. He already has plans for you, what it is for your finances. He's already got plans for you on what your health will be like. So you know what I ought to do? Fear not. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. Let God move me through those things. Let God push me through them and lead me through them. And let God be the one that directs me to the things that He wants to accomplish in my life versus me messing it up by trying to do it myself. Imagine if Moses said, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. And all those people said, no, we're running back. God would have still found a way to accomplish his plan. But imagine what, maybe, maybe God would have let some of them be killed by the Egyptians before he would have wiped them out. Maybe God would have only let half of them now cross the Red Sea. Maybe God would have, would have still accomplished what God wanted to accomplish, but some people may have missed out. How many things are we missing out on because we're fighting all these battles in our life on our own? And we say, wow, if I would just wait on God, man, maybe God would accomplish something even greater than I think I'm going to accomplish on my own. <clears throat> Psalm 27, 13, I had fainted unless I had believed to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Psalm 34, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man that trusteth in Him. See that the Lord is good. You, there, you can look at verses in the New Testament, looking unto Jesus, pressing toward the mark for the prize of the high calling, keeping our eyes on Christ. What are we looking towards? Look, if you're fearful and you're constantly distracted about the battles in your life, and you're not willing to wait on God, then I can tell you this, you're not looking to God for deliverance in those situations. This doesn't work in reverse. Yeah, okay, I can be fearful, and I can be hustling and bustling, uh, uh, but, but I'm sure I'll still be focused on what God's doing in my life. You won't. You have to remove the fear, you have to rest in Him, and then you can fully see and recognize God's deliverance and what God is doing. The question for us tonight is, who is fighting your battles for you? Are you fighting them yourself? Are you fearful and busy about trying to solve all of your own problems and battles? Or are you exercising faith and resting in God so that you can see what He can do? Turn with me to Romans 8. We're going to close with this verse here. Romans chapter 8. <clears throat> Going to read a few verses here. Romans 8 34 says, Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again. Who is even at the right hand of God who also maketh intercession for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, For thy sake we are killed all the day long, we are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, In all these things we are more than conquerors through Him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor power, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You know what Paul says right there? We are already more than conquerors. All the battles that have to be waged and all the battles that have to be fought, we are already conquerors, but not in and through ourselves. He says, We are more than conquerors through him that loved us. Look, Christ has already conquered everything that needs to be conquered. We're not the underdog. We're not. Sometimes you might feel like it. I'm I'm the only one in my job that's saved. I'm the only one that loves God. God's on your side. You're not the underdog. I'm the only one trying to do what's right and trying to raise my family right, and my neighbors scoff at me or, or people at work or this or that. Hey, you're not the underdog. You got God on your side fighting the battle. You're already a conqueror in Him. In whatever the battle might be, I'm not trying to trivialize, you know, health things and stuff like that. I understand that stuff is, you know, we want to be compassionate for one another, we want to care for one another. But at the end of the day, as Christians, we don't have to fight battles ourselves. This Christian life isn't for us to run alone. We are, we have a much greater conqueror, a much greater support system than anything this world could ever give us. Give us and we ought to just rely on Him. And just like for Israel, on both occasions, when they stood still and they just watched God, God made it happen. And God worked it out. And they all got to look back later and say, look at the deliverance of our God. And that ought to be our testimony. We ought to be able to say, hey, God, I'm, I'm just walking by faith. I'm just going to rely on you and rest in you and see God deliver in the battles in our lives. Amen?